seen it. The case I was working on was personal and absorbing. It took all of my attention. But that lie is breaking down under two weeks of strain. Is that my fault? I don't know. I wasn't in Martin's inner circle. I wasn't in anyone's inner circle, although I probably could have been. But joining wasn't, isn't, my nature. It hasn't been since I was Jimmy's age, back in the days when Martin and I were friends, when I called him M.L., just like everyone else did. When he was nothing more than a little boy with powerful eyes and an even more powerful father. Those days ended in a single night for me, the longest night of my entire life, December 16th, 1939. But all the seeds for everything that followed were sown two days before. That night, I used to believe, inspired Martin to his life's work, and perhaps it also influenced mine. That night, the Old South and the New met face to face in a way that they wouldn't do again for nearly twenty-nine years. They would meet again on April 4th, 1968, a little over two weeks ago. Then the New South faced the Old, and lost, as an assassin's bullet tore into Martin's throat, the home of his golden voice. The night of December 14th, 1939 wasn't as dramatic, at least for most of America, But in Atlanta, it was the biggest single event of the twentieth century. That night, Atlanta began two days of parties to celebrate the premiere of the movie Gone with the Wind. And Martin and I were there. The festivities actually began the evening before, as Hollywood's biggest stars rode through the cobblestoned streets of Atlanta. I had snuck out of the house. My father didn't cotton to all the hoopla surrounding Gone with the Wind, which he, rightly as it turns out, saw as perpetuating the white myths of the Old South. In the middle of the afternoon, I secured a spot on the corner of Peachtree and Ellis. It was December and cold, but people began lining up as early as noon for a parade that wouldn't start until four. I wasn't the only black on that corner. Right beside me were the daughters of the Grand, John Wesley Dobbs, the unofficial black mayor of Atlanta. He too would have been angry if he had known his daughters were there. I had heard him say only the day before that the book Gone with the Wind was not a great literary piece, and it wouldn't last long. The Grand was right about many things in his life, but not that. In those days, Atlanta was a small provincial city with a population of perhaps 300,000. There had to be that many people in the streets that afternoon, many of whom had driven in from rural areas of Georgia. Strangely, the crowd didn't shove or push. We stood, talking softly among ourselves, as we waited, hoping to catch a glimpse of the stars we had watched on the big screen. I didn't care so much about the movie, but I wanted to see Carol Lombard whom I thought was the prettiest woman I'd ever seen. A sentiment I'd once expressed to my aunt when she was visiting. She slapped me, hard. Little black boys like me didn't ogle rich white women like Carol Lombard, not even on the big screen. I learned that lesson early, and I learned it well.
But that didn't stop me from standing on Peachtree Street, right in the center of the route from Candler Field, where the stars had landed that afternoon, to the Georgian Terrace Hotel, where they would stay for the next three nights. The street was all lit up, and ahead were Klieg lights brought in special for the premiere. Banners and balloons hung from every balcony, and most of the buildings displayed the Confederate flag. It was not my celebration, and yet I cheered with the rest as the first of thirty convertibles appeared, flanked by police motorcycles. Confetti fell like snow, and somewhere a band was playing Dixie. I held up my hand and waved until I realized that seated in that car were people I didn't know. Behind them was a car filled with Daughters of the Confederacy, in period costume. My hand went down, and so did the hands around me. We waited until...